0: This is Main Street on Prairie Public, I'm Ashley Thornburg, and I want to talk to you today about communication and language, because have you ever been in this experience, or maybe more accurately, when was the last time you were in this situation where you said something... And then the person you were talking to thought you meant something else entirely. Language, to quote a favorite lyric from Modest Mouse, is the liquid that we're all dissolved in, great for solving problems after it creates a problem. (laughs) (laughs) Joining me today to talk about the philosophy of language and its role in preserving culture, and we'll zero in on that word preserving, is Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein. He is a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota, and he joins me periodically for Philosophical Currents. Jack, thanks for joining us today.
1: I'm happy to be here, Ashley, and I really like that quote because language is so steeped in the collective imagination Mm. that uh, we don't always know what we're doing with it, but there is a sense of community that comes with it that that is, is I think, irreducible to anything other than language.
0: Mm. Right away when you say we don't always know what we're doing with it, uh, and I'm sorry to our listeners to make this very much about me in, in, in this moment, but I find that I often open my mouth and, and start talking and don't really know where I'm going to go and then I say something, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that is what I mean. <laughs> and, and it's almost as if that kind of thinking only happens for me out loud in a way that it doesn't necessarily happen when I'm writing. And then I know other people who can write really well but aren't necessarily good at speaking. Um, and I'm not... Sure yet where this question is going. <laughs> <laughs> well that's okay.
1: Because we're we're both verbal people. Yeah. And we both trust our mouths in mm. a way that that maybe other people don't. I often have a similar experience where I'm teaching something and I'm listening to myself say something and I think, huh, I didn't know that. <laughs> right. Right? And, um, well, I'm saying, and, and so there is this different processing speed that mm. when you sort of step outside yourself and you let your 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 verbal self just hold the reins that you are often as surprised as anyone else is what comes out.
0: Well, let me ask you this then as an educator and and as a professor and as someone who is both a speaker and a writer, how do you address that in the classroom when somebody might be a really good test taker because they're great at writing, but somebody else might have a very similar intelligence but they just can't get it out on paper, they need to speak it. Uh Do you feel like there's freedom in at least higher education to explore the different kinds of intelligences?
1: Well, I want to step back a second to go to that writing thing, because actually test taking and something like essay are very, very different experiences. When you are taking a test, you read the question. You're supposed to know what the answer to the question is. You're supposed to sit there and say, "Okay, here's my short answer. I'm putting it on paper. But the very purpose of an essay is that you don't know what the answer is until you're done writing it. So the five pages, the 10 pages, the conclusion, that's going to be a surprise to you. And so – and one of the main differences is that essays are narrative in structure just like our speaking is. And so you don't know where you're going to end up until the sentence ends, until the paragraph ends, until the essay ends. And so I think there is a deeper connection between long-form writing and long-form speaking and figuring things out than there is just the communication of knowledge.
0: Hmm. So back to my original question, do you feel like there is freedom in higher education to really be assessing how a student's brain is working? Different different students work
1: different ways and different minds work different ways and different disciplines work different ways. So Hmm. there's a lot more room for exploration or a particular kind of exploration in in philosophy than there is in chemistry because chemistry, you have a tendency (laughs) to blow things up, right? Hmm. Um, But at the same time, there is a very, very disciplined and rigorous method for both. Uh, They're just very different in style. And so you do have students who are more verbal, who are more – Um, visual, who are more tactile, and education departments do often try to explore different teaching methods for each of those students. Hmm. But because we have a lot of students who are all doing the same things and there's a bureaucratic schedule, uh, it's very hard to meet everyone's needs. I notoriously was a terrible high school student. No, mm-hmm. no one thought I was going to graduate. I got into a program in college called the STAR program that I later found out stood for student at risk. And I got into it because I had high SATs and low grades. And, 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 mm. and, and that's odd for me because I'm a very bad test taker. Uh, so the, the SAT was a surprise. But what I am is someone who figures things out on the go. And mm. that is not something that is compatible with the high school education. It is more compatible with the college education. And so I did better in college than I ever did in, in, in primary or secondary school.
0: There is an episode of Radio Lab and it – is a study of academics who who went and and did a study of linguistics and they found a group of people who did not have a word for the color blue. Mm. And they showed them all of these different images and it was something like 10 slides of the color green and then the last one was blue. And they asked them to give the words, and they just kept saying the same word for green and green and green. And then when they got to the blue one, they just said green again. And the study was not, okay, they don't have the word for it, and so they're just going to use a different word. It was they don't have the word for it, and therefore they haven't made the neural connections for this. The brain scans were showing that they weren't seeing something different. How much of language... Is what is constructing our reality, is that a possible question to answer?
1: <laughs> well, language constructs reality almost definitively. But I actually want to tell another story to, um, to to make your point. This happened years ago, a conversation between my best friend and I. I uh, I'd gone shopping and I had bought a T-shirt. And she asked me what color the T-shirt was. And I said, I don't know, off green? And she burst into laughing and she said, she said, she said, (laughs) off green, what's (laughs) off green? And I said, I said oh, I don't know, kind of a washed up army green. And she said, that's ridiculous. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And I said she was married at the time. I, I, I said, ask your husband. And, and she, this was over the phone. And she calls out in the background, hey, Rob, uh, what's off green? And in the background, I heard, I don't know, kind of a washed out army <laughs> green. So it's been 30 years that I'm t- still yeah, telling yeah, yeah. that story. But the point is that Colors in particular mm-hmm. are very, very socially constructed. The, the Greeks didn't have a word for blue. They called it um, wine red. Uh,
0: Isn't that illustrated in the Odyssey? The, right. the sky, the ocean are never defined as
1: blue. And colors in our culture are very, very gendered. So Gail, my best friend, had a much richer vocabulary for what constitutes color than her husband and I, because right. we were g- gendered male and, and and raised. We don't and have that eye comb and We don't, don't have, have different eyes. colored right.
0: clothing. Exactly
1: right, <laughs> and so um, it's not surprising to me that not only does a person who not have the word for something not be able to create a word, but they may not even be able to see it because the language allows us to see the subtle distinction. There is a difference between pink and salmon. I don't know what it is, but there is a difference between the two. And the more your language allows for precision, the more you can visually account for precision. And the more people who have that natural ability to see that Visual precision, the more they're going to be struggling for the language. We have to Mm. find some sort of coordination between the two. And so there is this deep, deep philosophical question as to how much of our reality is constructed by our language and how much of our language is objective or a subjective representation of what reality is.
0: Interesting that you use a word like precision because some people can, can get precise to a point of stopping a conversation. And I'll give you an example. If you see in a, a newspaper article an earthquake decimated the buildings in this town and then a particularly persnickety editor will say – Oh, one-tenth of the buildings were destroyed because Mm -hmm. you need to change that by one decimal. It wasn't decimated. But losing the spirit of the paragraph, even though it stayed true to, like, the letter of the word. Talk about this ability that we have in language to sort of know when we need to be hyper-precise and when that is helpful and when we just get stuck.
1: The goal of language is communication. And on that level, the goal of, of of language is to engage our imagination. My imagination has to be engaged in order to figure out how I can say to you what I need to say. And your imag- imagination has to be engaged in order to translate that language. If someone comes along and says uh, decimated means means 10 and therefore you can't use that word, they're being unnecessarily pedantic because the whole purpose of the word decimated is not the mathematical element of it, but is the emotional element of it, the mm. passionate element of it. And so when someone says decimated, what you're not supposed to hear is the, the, that it's one-tenth. You're supposed to hear that there was trauma, that there was shock, that it was irrecoverable. And that's because Language and words have literal meanings and they have figurative meanings and they also have connotations. And all of those three things are very, very cultural as well. There are lots of words that we use that um, if you reduce to their literal meaning would be useless for our everyday ability to communicate. And so what a good conversation or a good um, interaction – allows you to do is triangulate those three elements, the literal, the figurative, and the connotative meaning, because uh, then you get a full picture. Now, someone like Wittgenstein is going to be engaged in a conversation as to whether or not language is inherently pictorial or not. Mm. Is the goal Mm. of language to create images in our mind, um, or is the goal of language to be separate from the visual completely? And that's a huge debate in philosophy.
0: We are visiting today with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein, a Chester Fritz Distinguished Professor of Philosophy at the University of North Dakota. And, Jack, when I first was introducing you, I said the philosophy of language in preserving culture. And I feel like there's an argument that that language, yes, can preserve but also needs to evolve. So we'll start with the first end of it, preserving a culture. How do you talk about language's role like that?
1: Language is inherently conservative because it's built on the past. Uh, the language that we use in order to be understandable has to have some common frame. And when we lose that common frame, we get the I don't know. I, I don't know if I want to be th- the strict on it, but the connotation rather than the literal meaning. So the expression toe the line," right? Most of us don't know the origin of where towing the line comes from, but we all know what it means. Uh, a long road to hoe. Is it a lo- lots? of People say long road to hoe, but it's mm-hmm. not. It's a long road to hoe. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Because for it all has intensive f- purposes. Right. Right. For, for all intensive purposes. purposes. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. All of these. Language, all of these phrases, they preserve history with them. They carry along all of these things. If I decide whether to call you uh, Miss, Ms., or Mrs., right, that brings not only mm-hmm. all sorts of historical information but an entire political and moral theory with it, right? So the words that I choose are going to have all of this baggage and we look – First and foremost to the past to figure out what it means and then we look to the future to see whether first the connotation and then the meaning is still acceptable. There are lots of words like idiot was a technical medical term Mm -hmm. at first. Um, So was – pardon me for using this word online. So was the word retarded was a technical medical term. Now it's a word that we are not uh, supposed to use except in very technical – conversations like this, and if I was to defend myself right now for using that word, if I was going to do it on paper, I would say I didn't say the word retarded. I went, quote, retarded, quote, Because I'm not talking about the meaning of the word. I'm talking about the word itself. Mm -hmm. Words are symbols. And so what I'm discussing now is the symbol rather than the meaning. And that's where the writing comes back in because the writing allows us to distinguish between words as symbols and words of conveyors of meaning.
0: Hmm. You and I have talked before uh, about – the N-word and how you no longer use it in class. Um, I believe you you phrased it as there is a body of work that shows that there's a neurological response similar to being attacked yes. when, when they hear that word, and that's why you don't use that. Um, but I'm wondering about other phrases where we may not still remember that they... Are racist in origin. Something like the grandfather clause goes back to how many of your grandparents might have been black and did that preclude you from any sort of basic human rights? But we still say there's a grandfather clause in the sloan or something is grandfathered in um, without realizing that. So are we carrying forward that sort of racist thinking if we have lost the charge of the word.
1: We are carrying the history that is there for people who are willing to look. So I am certainly willing to accept the fact that somebody who uses the phrase the grandfather clause or grandfathered in" isn't being racist. Mm-hmm. Now, there are other more obvious examples like someone being gypped or jewing someone down or mm-hmm. even the paddy wagon right these uh, which refers to Irish cops. Okay. Um, you know those things are a little more obvious and so we expect people to be a little more attentive mm-hmm. uh, but The further we get from the origins, the more excuse you have from using it. So then the question becomes, what do we want out of our, I'll say, civic language? Do we want our civic language to be Pure? Do we want it to be free of history or do we want to carry it with us so that we can look back and say – use it as an excuse to say, OK, here is this history of, of, of racism that we have to explain. You will never if, – if we stop teaching racism. If we Mm -hmm. stop teaching the history of racism in the United States, if we stop teaching the history of the one-drop rule, if we stop uh, teaching the history of all these things, then we can never explain godfathered in. Sorry, I Grandfather did. What we need at minimum is enough information to be able to go backwards and look and see how we got here. Because otherwise, we're just completely disconnected from the story that leads us to where we are now. Now, some of that story is very positive and wonderful and some of that story is horrible and awful. But it's still our story and we still need to embrace it enough to talk about it and acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. But we do have to ask ourselves which words are going to be acceptable and which aren't because how we – those words that we choose are going to define our reality. So for example, we're having a conversation right now about pronouns, Mm -hmm. about uh, she and he and her and him and they They. and and Mm -hmm. all of that. And so one of the reasons why we're having that conversation is that we are questioning the very nature of gender. Mm -hmm. And – this is a conversation that's going to happen for a long time and it's a conversation that we're deep into. But the easiest way to enter into the conversation is to use the language and then use that as a jumping point for a much more sophisticated way of, of having – of discussing it.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I want to go a little deeper into that pronoun discussion because some people have called for a new one that they already exists and has – a whole syntactical, grammatical structure built around it, that there might be someone who is willing to um, call someone a they but then just struggles with the subject-verb agreement that they want to say they are, not they is, or, or what have you. Is there an argument to be made for just making a brand new one that doesn't have the history and therefore you don't have all of that ability to teach alongside it.
1: I don't think the issue in the long run is going to be the subject-verb agreement because most of our conversation that we have is is grammatically incorrect anyway. Hmm. I actually think the problem is going to be— Fun
0: fact, you don't need to say grammatically incorrect. (laughs) Just say it's grammatical or not grammatical. Well, there we go. Here's an example of being pedantic
1: right there forever.
0: Ladies
1: and gentlemen, here all week. Um, But I think the problem will be the plural. Because Mm. if you say they're coming over for dinner, you don't know if one person or five people are coming over. Sure. And so we are going to have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let me give you another example.
0: But but my question is, if we make a new pronoun, do we lose the framework of having the conversation of why do you choose this term?
1: Well, we've lost a pronoun um, in English because we used to have the formal you. Mm -hmm. We used to have thou and the relationship between thou – Uh, And you disappeared once we started living in a more democratic society because thou was much more intimate. You was formal. Mm. Thou was intimate, which is why God speaks uh, to – God's creation, thou as a parent, uh, uh, speaks to a child. Um, we lose pronouns all the time, we gain pronouns all the time. Language has to be malleable. So there shouldn't be any kind of inherent objection to creating a new pronoun. The question is, how do we make it work? And how do we make it work well in a way that everyone understands it?
0: I want to talk a little bit about how language shapes your mindset, not just your reality. And the... I'll give an example here of I was told once that there are certain indigenous languages where there aren't as many nouns. This is not a rock. This is being a rock. And, and so infused in that is that there is a relationship to this object. What, is, what are the philosophical thoughts <laughs> on, on language and its ability to shape how you interact with things that don't have the same language as you.
1: It's a really profound question because it gets to the deepest of all metaphysical questions, which is, is there something between existence and non-existence? Is there something Mm. between being and non-being? And the answer, of course, is becoming. Right. And so if I think of Jack as existing, then I have one vision of him. If I think of Jack as becoming who I am, mm. then I have another sense of who I am. This conversation uh, both exists, but it's all so being created as we're having it. It's in a state of becoming. And so for a very, very long time, metaphysicians tended to look at the universe in terms of just what exists and what doesn't exist. And then if that's the case, then you don't see the universe as a process. You don't see it as a procedure. You don't Mm. see it as um, an unfolding. And so if you have a culture that is much more connected to nature rather than, say, industry or, or artifact, if you have a uh, a culture which looks at the, um, the 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 unfolding of of life, birth, death, of the growth of plants, of of the seasons changing, then the role of becoming is going to become is is going to become much more uh, in, uh, essential because you can't describe nature just in terms of what is or what isn't. Nature is constantly changing, and so. Cultures are going to have the language that best describes uh, their context. There is, and I don't know if this is true or just an urban legend, but there is the old expression that, that Eskimos have 100 different words for for, for for snow because the slush is different than powder, which is different than icy snow, which is different than all of these other kinds of snow that I myself wouldn't even able be able to distinguish, even having spent 24 years in North Dakota. Um, But if you live in a place that is surrounded by snow, then you're going to be able to distinguish between the snow that's two feet in front of you and 12 feet in front of you Mm -hmm. if they have some sort of substantive difference. So our context is going to define our language and our language at its foremost role is going to define our reality. Uh, Let me give another example. For a long time, I didn't quite understand why people were using the word pansexual instead of bisexual, right? If you love a man, if you you are attracted to men and women, then you're bisexual. But if – you're bisexual, that means there are only two genders. There is no spectrum. Uh, There's no spectrum between male and female. There's no spectrum between masculine and feminine. And so what a pansexual says is, no, wherever you are on that, you may be more masculine than feminine, but have some feminine and some masculine or vice versa, then you can use the word pansexual. So, Just comparing those two words, pansexual versus bisexual, has a much more – pansexual is a much more robust universe, a much more subtle universe, a much more flexible universe. And so the words that we use are going to give us permission to think in different ways because of how much flexibility they give us
0: we're visiting with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein and we are talking today about the philosophy of language and its role in both preserving and evolving culture and Jack you were talking about gender here and and the ability to to think about different genders allowed for a more robust universe and I feel like I first had um, a moment in this when I was doing some KonMari folding. This is Marie Kondo. This is the the Japanese woman who has really popularized uh, folding clothing uh, and taking care of your house in a very specific way. And the surface level here is, okay, if you fold your clothes smaller, you're going to – put them away and it's just going to take up less space and then in the process of of learning her method you're supposed to take the piece of clothing and then you ask does it spark joy and if it doesn't you say thank you and then let it move on and if it does spark joy you keep it and so it's not really about like stuff. It, it's about interacting with things and your relationship to things. And and I wonder about this process um, of being very intentional about why we're using the words that we're using and how that can lead to a robust thought process. Uh, and And the phrase you use, the permission to think differently, I heard an interview recently, a woman who grew up Christian and was later introduced to her indigenous ancestral beliefs, and she came away with two different philosophies on spirituality and religion and interacting with the world, and one she felt was more outward and one was more inward. Talk to us, Jack, about this idea of being process-oriented versus journey-oriented and how it applies to our personal beliefs.
1: Well, there are, as she pointed out, these two great divide. There's this, there's this great divide in religion, whether religion is outward focused and whether the, your God and your spiritual laws are discoverable out in the world and whether these uh, are inward and whether you discover through meditation and through your own interaction with with um, nature and or, or, or the metaphysics or, or the universe or your deity or what have you. And the Marie Kondo example is one in which she wants to convert our relationship with objects into a relationship with ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's what she's doing. There. Yeah, she it's wants, an examination but, of
0: values and are you yeah. living up to your values?
1: And, and to, to, to find that mindfulness and that meditativeness because we live in a culture, especially in the United States, where we are obsessed with stuff. And that stuff, those objects, they fill our world. They fill our rooms. They fill our senses. And so the only way to, to step away from that is to go inward rather than outward. There are other mm-hmm. Places, however, though, where you want to be outward, where you want to look again. I, I'll use the example of nature. You want to see the grass. You want to see the leaves. You want to try to s- notice the grasshopper or the frog outside of you because the last thing that you want to be when you're on a hike is a narcissist <laughs> or a solipsist. You're there to commune with the external. Now, both of these have processes, but they're processes with different li- uh, with different terms and different, different mechanisms, and it all depends on what you want to get out of it. And so I don't know that one tradition has a greater connection to the becoming or to the being than any other tradition, but they do express themselves in different ways. And the consequence of that is going to be uh, a different kind of importance. So in the, in the great Eastern traditions of oneness, the individual becomes less important. Mm-hmm. And in a tradition of oneness, it's much harder to find individual rights and the ability of a, of a person to fully articulate themselves who they are separate and distinct from other people whereas a culture of stuff a culture of objects uh, it's much easier to describe a person as a physical being that shouldn't be molested or abused or, or, or denied their rights but it's very very hard to find a sense of, of community one of the things that I personally object to in uh, 19 especially in the 1980s discussion of, of, of of, of abortion rights and pro-life and pro-choice is that lots of people will say uh, i I have property over my own body um then and therefore I have control over my own body I think that that's dangerous I think it's it's dangerous to say that you have property over your own body I think you are your body mm-hmm. and to distinguish between the soul and the physicality is to create a, a bifurcation in who you are as an identity and so from a certain perspective what our grand metaphysical task probably is and our grand epistemological task, our ability to, to understand, to know, is to figure out how can we reconcile the insights of the inward traditions with the insights of the outward traditions and see if we can find, pardon the, the term scientists here, a grand unified theory <laughs> of, uh, of what it means to be in the world. Mm. And language is the front line of that debate.
0: We bifurcate identities all the time. We do. Uh, you can be a husband and a son. You probably do those roles very differently.
1: I would, I would hope. <laughs> um, but also, dividing something up for purpose of analysis is different than dividing something up in person for the purpose of experiencing it or learning from it. Uh, and what I mean by that is, I can. Talk about what I am as a son or as a husband in order to say, hey, this is why I behaved this way or this is why I behave that way. But if I'm in, a, in, in therapy, one of the central goals is to learn how being a, a, a son actually influenced and impairs my ability to be a husband, right? Mm. Um, and so if I'm dividing these roles, again, my best friend, um, Gail, who I mentioned before, She claims my favorite word is the Latin word qua, Q-U-A, and because I I like to say jack qua husband versus jack qua son, jack in the role of husband, Mm -hmm. jack in the role of son. Jack in the role of teacher has very, very different boundaries uh, than jack in the role of of father or friend because I have professional expectations and I have a duty of care for my students that are different than, say, a duty of care that I have for my daughter. Uh, But – I am still Jack and one of the things that, that, that people who claim to know this say is that I'm actually very, very similar in front of the classroom than I am outside of the classroom and that there's a unity of myself that my students find very, very satisfying. Hmm. Um, so all of this is to say one of the things that language does is allow us to focus our attention and to say, OK, now we're going to talk about Jack as husband. Now we're going to talk about Jack as son. Now we're going to talk about becoming. Now we're going to talk about being and to bracket, put aside other considerations. But, that, but we're doing that to the purpose of, of learn or purpose of a particular consequence or, 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 or to, to make a point, And then to be able to step back and use language and say, OK, now I'm just talking about Jack. And what is jackness? What is the essence of Jack? And what is it that all of these different roles, jack qua husband, jack qua father, jack qua son, jack qua teacher, what is the jackness that all of these share? And that goes all the way back to Plato and Plato's hmm. use of language to try to, to describe and, and, and discover universals and essence that make things what they are.
0: Yeah. Thirty six minutes into the conversation we've hit what is the nature <laughs> of the self. So exactly right. <laughs> well <laughs> you know, using the word qua in place of in the role of there's an efficiency there uh, to just say that this word stands for this phrase. And and as we're talking about being process oriented or journey oriented or looking inward or looking outward and how language impacts how we go through the world, I want to talk about efficiency. As an American, I can go to anywhere in the world and it is not difficult for me to find someone who speaks English. It is incredibly efficient. But there's also a stunning lack of diversity as we face language extinction. How do people who specialize in the philosophy of language look at that balance between efficiency and loss of diversity?
1: Diverse language gives us diverse perspectives of understanding. Diverse language gives us uh, a variety of ways of describing things. some there are people who claim that some languages like Persian are better for uh, describing poetry for for, for being uh, they're more poetic language than things like German, which are better for science. Now other people disagree with that. Um, but there is something to be said for the fact that. In order to learn another's culture, another's experience, you have to learn the language as well. And what Americans lose by always getting to speak English wherever they go is immersion in that culture.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we lose a language, whether it's an indigenous language or Uh, a scientific language or something like that, we are certainly losing parts of that culture. And so I think it is in our best interest to try to preserve as much language as possible if for no other reason than we have more access to diverse truths and diverse experiences and diverse stories and diverse histories. At the same time, language is useless if we can't use it to communicate. If we can't communicate with other people, if we can't communicate with ourselves, how many times have you been stuck looking for a word in your own head and that meant that you yourself couldn't even move forward with the thought? Because Mm -hmm. we are constantly talking to ourselves as we're talking to other people. And so some of the the unsatisfying answer to your question is that it really (laughs) just depends on on what the context is. In – as a – world of people who want as much knowledge as possible, losing a language to extinction is a great tragedy. As a world that is striving to overcome division and bias and hostility and longstanding animosity, then... The desire for a communal language, the desire for, a mutual un- a desire for a mutual understanding, that is a great gift. And I think we have to have one foot in both worlds because we have to preserve as much as possible but also try to find a way to share and communicate as much as possible to overcome the 10,000 years of hatred that comes along with certain terms and certain ideas that maybe we'd be better off jettisoning.
0: Well, can that be applied to just English at large? Because English is everywhere because of colonization.
1: Well, sure, but so is French and so is Spanish, Hmm. right? And so uh, we have a tendency right now uh, – to I, I remember watching some video where someone was talking about oh white people and how terrible white people treat women and and, mm. and my response was well there are many places in the world where there aren't a lot of white people and they treat women pretty awfully right so I don't want us to get to get go down that that particular sort of fad at the moment because mm. the history of colonialization is, is is a history that 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 precedes uh, French was the, the dominant language in England for 300 years. Mm. So there's that. But I once heard the the, the Pakistani um, uh, ambassador say that, that America is the only country in which the phrase, this is history, means it's no longer relevant. Mm. Uh, every other culture in the world, if something is history, it's something that holds the culture up, holds the, 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 the animosity, holds the anger, holds the hope, holds the truth. But for us, it's water under the bridge. History is irrelevant. And maybe that's because we're a young country or maybe it's because we're a country built on change in a way that most any other – I would think actually no other country is. Um, and our use of proverbs like water under the bridge is going to reflect that.
0: Jack, we've spent this whole time talking about language and how it can be very complicated. I wonder, and and maybe this is considered language, I'm I'm not sure, but what about when there is no word for something? When we can only scream or grunt and, and we don't live in a culture where that's really explored and allowed. So, so talk to us, Jack, a little bit about the mindset that comes up when we sort of have to use words instead of something that feels, in a weird way, just more instinctual.
1: Well, I want to caution us and not equate words and language, because mm. words are elements of language, but we have verbal language, we have sure. um, expressive language, the you know the word help is 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 in itself in a certain sense a complete sentence right we have grammar uh, that 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 moves the words around and so a grunt right I mean uh, with our intimate partners we are often much more attentive to the the noises we make than the words we use and mm-hmm. in fact lots and lots of people feel very very uncomfortable using words mm-hmm. when they're intimate with their partners and so. Uh, what philosophy of language is, is – philosophy of language is trying to do several things at, at once. Well, first, philosophy of language is trying to create a, a, an accurate picture of reality and what that means. Um, philosophy of language is also trying to uh, offer precise accounts of how people communicate and express themselves. Um, philosophy of language is trying to distinguish between the content of language and the grammatical structure of language. But philosophy of language is also trying to find precision. There are a lot of philosophers of language who are essentially doing math. What they're trying to do is reduce the language to its logical components. And Mm. so instead of saying, you know, uh, Johnny wears a hat and is therefore warm, they'll have all these symbols that sort of translate as something like, for all X, there is such an X that when X wear, uh, has Y, it is Z, right? Or something like mm-hmm. that, right? I mean, and the goal is to create an ideal language, a language that, that doesn't um, bring error with it, a, a language that, that that gets rid of all the, um, ambiguity, a language that 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 doesn't uh, lead to confusion but leads to perfect clarity. Now, I think that that may be a fool's errand, but it certainly has gotten a lot of people tenure, right? Um, uh, but but so the philosophy of language is 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 a very, very, very wide field that allows us to look at the way that we communicate in order to, to analyze it to both identify its shortcomings and try to fix its shortcomings. Now, then the question becomes, do we want to include in the philosophy of language things like the philosophy of art, right? Mm-hmm. There, are, there, are, there are artists who have their own very, very, very specific visual depictions that instead of uh, creating um, simple images, they're creating symbols. How do we use symbols in the philosophy of language? Because as I said earlier on, words are just symbol. Um, Famously, uh, a philosopher would take the – would try to describe language as saying uh, snow is white is true if and only if snow is white. And the way that they describe it is by saying, quote, snow is white, quote, is true if and only if snow is white without quotes. And truth becomes this thing (laughs) called disquotation. Now, if that didn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. My point is that – what we are calling language is really a relationship between the symbols that we use to communicate and the clarity and the ambiguity that is present in those symbols and whether or not the language does the intended job. And so the first question we have to ask is really the first questions that we started with, which is what is the role and what is the purpose of language? And if we have that role and purpose, can we bend language to our own needs or are we slaves to the language that we create?
0: So it's about power.
1: (laughs) It is certainly tied into power.
0: (laughs) Jack, do you ever look at your dog and and think – hmm is he talking about disquotation and, and truth and uh, is, is this dog so much smarter than I am well are we talking about my dog or are we talking
1: about my quote dog quote
0: <laughs> and with that we have been visiting with philosopher Dr. Jack Russell Weinstein he is a Chester Fritz distinguished professor of philosophy at the University of North Dakota he also hosts why philosophical discussions about everyday life which you can hear Here, right here on Prairie Public the second Sunday of the month at 4 o'clock Mountain, 5 o'clock Central. There's a longer version uh, available as a podcast. Jack, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, this
1: was so much fun. Thank you.